From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. On any given day in the United States, more than 14,000 people are waiting for a liver transplant. Now, since the number of people waiting for a liver transplant greatly exceeds the number of available deceased donor livers, living donor transplant is sometimes an alternative to waiting for a deceased donor liver to become available. We'll learn about liver transplant options and discuss the importance of organ donation with a Mayo Clinic experts. Also on the program, understanding clinical trials, who can participate and how it benefits science and medicine. And we'll talk about prevention of the common problem of constipation. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, the Mayo Clinic liver transplant program, uh, there's three different sites. All three sites do liver transplants, Arizona, Florida, and of course, the mothership, Minnesota. (laughs) And the three of them combined perform over 300 liver transplants every year. Now, unfortunately, like other organs, the number of people who are waiting for a liver transplant far exceeds the number of available donors. Because the human liver regenerates and returns to its normal size shortly after part of it is removed, living donor liver transplant is an alternative to waiting for a deceased donor liver to become available. Isn't that interesting? The liver can actually regenerate itself, make more of itself, the only organ in the body that can do it. Here to discuss liver transplant is the Division Chair of Transplant Surgery at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Charles Rosen. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Rosen. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Dr. Rosen, nice to see you. Uh, Mayo Clinic Rochester, one of the sites that does liver transplants. So tell us why someone would need a liver transplant. A liver transplant's done for anybody that develops liver failure. It can happen rather suddenly, and we call it acute liver failure, and that can be either from uh, drugs such as Tylenol overdose, it can be from uh, an acute hepatitis caused by a virus, or a couple of real rare conditions, and sometimes it's just a drug interaction that we don't totally understand. also, people can have what's long-standing uh, liver disease or chronic liver disease that over a period of years develops into cirrhosis, and that can be caused by alcohol, a lot of viruses that can cause cirrhosis, as well as some diseases that we have fancy names for but really don't understand all that well. So cirrhosis basically means that the liver, scarring of the liver, That's right. right. And the liver, uh, when the liver is an organ, as you mentioned, it can regenerate and grow back. But for some reason, when it gets diseased, it grows back and develops these fibrous scar tissue that keeps it from regenerating to its full capacity and uh, results in problems. Did I, did I hear you say that if you take too much Tylenol, you can get acute liver failure? Is that over a long period of time? No, it's if you take too much once. And unfortunately, in some countries like the United Kingdom, it's a, uh, a form of suicide. Occasionally, it can be that done here or it can be inadvertent. And if you also drink alcohol with the Tylenol, the two of them together is not a very good combination. Really? But you have to take quite a lot. If there is um, a lack of liver, livers available for donation, why aren't more living donor, why isn't that happening more often? Um, Well, first of all, uh, I'd 
it's kind of exciting. Uh, 2016 was a wonderful year for transplantation. It was the highest number of donors ever in the United States. Wow. Uh, there were over almost 16,000 donors and 33,600 people got transplants last year. Hmm. Both those numbers are up about 10% or 9% from the year before. And organ donation is actually up about 20% over the last five years. So we're fortunate in the United States that the deceased donation has gone up. And we would much rather do that rather than a living donor transplant. Uh, when you get the whole organ with the larger vessels and the bile ducts, uh, things go well. A living donor transplantation is a way around it for people that can't get a deceased mm -hmm. donor because of their position on the waiting list. There are more problems in the recipient with the bile duct because it's shorter and smaller, and the same with the blood vessels going to and from the liver. Uh, and of course, the donor has to undergo a pretty major mm -hmm. operation. It involves taking out up to s almost 70% of the liver in some situations. The liver grows back fine, but just the course of the operation, uh, dividing the blood vessels and dividing the liver, uh, is can pose some risk to the donor, and the risk to the donor's life is actually about somewhere between one in 200 to one in 300, hmm. so it's it's not insignificant. So one to two percent uh, chance that you'll die being a living liver donor? Uh, one in 200 to one in 300, so about oh, okay. uh, 0.5, than, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> wow, but still. It's a big risk. What's the average wait how long do people use typically wait for a donation ever since the early 2000s they changed the allocation for liver uh, based on the uh, the government's kind of directive to the transplant community to transplant the sickest patients first so it isn't uh, how long that someone would wait for a transplant but how sick that they have to get so waiting time doesn't really matter unless uh, you have a condition where the score is adjusted because of a tumor or something but unfortunately now, many of our patients are getting far more sick than they were years ago. Uh, oftentimes they're in the intensive care unit or even on dialysis for kidney failure that results from the, the liver failure. So I heard you say, um, I think that you would prefer to do a deceased persons uh, use that, uh, their liver, as opposed to a living donor, correct? We would always prefer to do a deceased donor liver transplant over a living donor transplant if we can get the liver. And the only reason that you would do a living donor transplant is if the person uh, on the waiting list could uh, couldn't you, you couldn't find a uh, deceased liver donor for that person? That's right. And the reason we wouldn't be able to find it is that they're not quite as sick as the other people that are on the deceased donor waiting list. So their score, which we call a MELD score, model for end-stage liver disease, and that score is lower because they're not at as much risk of dying, although they're still pretty sick. Mm -hmm. So in those situations where we can't get a liver until they get more sick, we consider living donation. I think the last time that you were on the show with us, that you had just done your 1,000th liver <laughs> surgery. That might be true. <laughs> so know, that was 1,000 ago. <laughs> so tell us about the day you did five in one day. Um, well, it right? wasn't just me. It was our entire team. And uh, <laughs> uh, there, there was a day uh, about a year and a half ago when we did do five transplants in one day in Rochester. Uh, living and deceased donors? Uh, they were all deceased donors except for one. One was a heart-liver transplant, and the liver, that patient had a disease called familial amyloidosis, where the liver is normal, but it just makes too much of a protein, and in order to get rid of it, you have to get rid of the liver, wow. and so you replace the liver with a transplant, and they also needed a heart transplant. But the liver that we took out of that patient can be used for another patient, 
and we pick patients that are a little bit older in their upper 50s to 60s or older and they get that disease when they get that new liver, but it might take 20, 30, or 40 years before it causes trouble. So that day we did do five transplants. One was what we call a domino transplant. Yeah. The other were four deceased donors. That must be unusual to have that many deceased donor organs become available on one day. Right, and we've actually done the math, and for a program that does about 100 transplants per year over 365 days, the chance of when we do one transplant, the chance of doing two or more is about 43%. Now tell us about pig liver and other organ donation. Are are we close to the point in time where we can take a a pig liver and transplant it into a human? We're not very close, but uh, we're working uh, with pig cells. Uh, Dr. Scott Nyberg has a lab and is developing techniques to use pig cells to support a human, particularly the kind of patients that might be in acute liver failure Mm -hmm. and just need temporary support Mm -hmm. with an artificial device until a liver becomes available or even if their own liver were to recover. But to actually use a whole organ from a a non-human is still in our future. More fiction than fact. (laughs) Yeah, so far. (laughs) So you do 100 a year at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, 300 a year system-wide. That's terrific. We actually did 131 in 2016 with about 21 living donors, and the rest were deceased donors. So it was an all-time high for us as well. That's a lot of lives saved, isn't it? It is. Your liver lets you live. That's correct. (laughs) Mayo Clinic transplant surgeon, Dr. Charles Rosen. Time for a short break. When we come back, we're going to switch gears and talk a little bit about uh, about organ donation and how important it is to saving lives. And myth or matter of fact, each day in the U.S., more than 120,000 thousand people are waiting for an organ transplant. Is that a myth or a fact? We'll find out when we return. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're visiting with Mayo Clinic transplant surgeon Dr. Charles Rosen. And we've talked about liver transplants and how far they've come, how many the Mayo Clinic is doing every year, how successful they are. But now we need to talk about the importance of organ donation. Well, first we have to talk myth or matter of fact. Dr. Rosen, each day in the U.S., more than 120,000 people are waiting for an organ transplant. Is that a myth or a fact? Well, it's kind of in between. The number has gone over 120,000, but I checked this morning before coming here, and there actually today or this morning there were 118,786 people awaiting a transplant in the United States. Is that how many thousand? 118,786. Is that just a liver transplant no, or that's, transplant in general? That's for all organs, uh, kidneys, kidney pancreas, lung, heart, liver, and a few small bowel. And you said every 10 minutes what? UNOS, the United Network for Organ Sharing, that monitors and uh, helps manage uh, organ allocation in the United States, estimates that a patient is added to the waiting list every 10 minutes for one or more organs. Unfortunately, though, uh, and very sobering statistic, about 22 people die each day that are on the waiting list that haven't been able to receive an organ. So every 10 minutes, a person gets added to the list, but every, how many did you say? 20, almost once an hour. Wow. Someone dies because they couldn't get an organ transplant. Do most of your, uh, most of your donors are deceased, correct? That's right. And uh, have most of them been involved in an accident or or what's the most common uh, cause of death for an organ donor? 
the most common cause used to be an accident with a head injury, uh, but that was uh, years ago when uh, we had very stringent criteria and accepted only young, otherwise healthy donors. Uh, we've expanded our criteria quite a bit, and uh, over a number of years, the number one cause for death turned into be strokes mm. uh, and even mm. heart attacks uh, where people would uh, lose the blood supply to their brain for a period of time or somebody that had a stroke where they bled into their brain. This past couple of years, however, we've it's kind of sad, but one of the rising indications for organ donation has been drug intoxication, mm. either with prescription narcotics or uh, um, illicit substances. So you can use those organs if someone dies of a drug overdose? Um, we can use those organs. It, mm. uh, it depends. Sometimes the drug might injure one or more of the organs. Uh, or Especially if it was too much Tylenol. <laughs> that, <laughs> the liver probably wouldn't be... It's so good, huh? That, and the Tylenol actually is bad for the liver and the kidneys, yeah. How do you register to become an organ donor? If that, you're listening to this and you just think, ah, I've always thought I should do that, but where do I start? Well, that's very important because we think that's one of the reasons why organ donation is on the rise because now in almost every state, you can either register when you renew your driver's license to be a donor or there's a state registry uh, in every state uh, that's run by the local organ procurement organization such that you can... Um, put in your wishes in the event of your death. And it really is helpful for your family to do that. Years gone by, we used to say to think about it, make a decision, and share that decision with your family. And now you can share that decision with the registry such that uh, your family doesn't have to worry about what you would have wanted to be done in the event of your death. Why is it important, though, to have that conversation with your family? Is there, you know, you're involved with this, dealing with the patients. I mean, is there a benefit to that, just talking with your family members? I think there is, uh, uh, both for the um, designation for yourself to either put it on the registry or the driver's license, but also talking to your family about it, I, I think helps uh, settle their mind that uh, the, the reasons were your own and done for that reason, and also perhaps to talk to your family members about doing the same thing. All right, but what you just said is that the families cannot override the decision to be a donor, whereas they used to be able to do that, right? That's right. So that's a, def that's a huge change. Yes, it is. So uh, one way to do it is a driver's license, and you say you can do it that way in almost every state? I believe it's uh, at least 48 of the, of the 50 states. Uh, the other two states might have come along already. I don't know. And when you sign that, does that mean they can take every organ? It does uh, give consent for all organ donation in some states, tissue as well, but in general, the tissue procurement won't be done uh, unless the family consents to it. What does that mean, tissue? Uh, tissue is taking uh, uh, skin, long bones, the corneas, the heart for valves, uh, blood vessels. Uh, those tissues can be used for a number of reconstructions uh, and for patients, and those tissues, ha unlike the organs, have to be processed. Uh, and then sent back to hospitals. And uh, it is a bit different. Uh, the procurement can be done without disfiguring the individual, but it's certainly a, a more invasive uh, thing to do than, um, than, a, than an organ procurement, and it's, it's done after death. So and let's talk then a minute about living donors, because uh, with regard to the liver, you would prefer a deceased donor, but you're getting a fair number of uh, living liver donors, but also kidneys, right? And, and, and the living kidney donor, that's not such a big deal, is it? Uh, the risk for death for a living kidney donor is much, much less than a liver. It's probably one in several thousand. The difference between 
living donor kidney transplantation and living donor liver transplantation is that a living donor kidney is actually a better kidney than a deceased donor kidney. Hmm. Uh, they last longer and they work better and they work right away from the outset. Uh, whereas with a liver transplantation, the problems are all technical and uh, because of the technical complexities, we'd rather have the whole organ rather than just part of the organ. And if you become a, a living kidney donor, you've got two of them, obviously, it does not shorten your lifespan, correct? No, it does not. In fact, uh, um, when people do population studies, oftentimes the living donors, uh, living kidney donors live longer, but that's probably related to their fact that they're so heavily screened and examined before they can go through the donation process. And giving a, a kidney as a, a living donor, not that big a deal, right? I mean, it's a relatively small incision, and you said the complications and the risk of death are very small. That's right. Uh, nowadays, that uh, incision is kept quite small, and uh, our team mobilizes the kidney or takes it out using a laparoscopy uh, so that uh, they can keep the incision much, much smaller, and the incision is just big enough to take the kidney out through it. Outpatient surgery? Almost. Two-day hospital stay. <laughs> You've got your Donate Life pin on. So as a final, mo uh, final message here, what would you like our listeners to know about organ donation? As always, uh, transplantation is a wonderful thing for patients in need. We can help a lot of people that otherwise have a terrible quality of life or are going to die without a transplant. And uh, it's a personal decision, but I encourage everybody to think about what they would want to happen in the event of their death. It's the one act of giving that one can do after one dies and help a lot of people, up to probably eight different people, depending on how many organs can be used after death. So it's important to think about it. Register as a donor if you're so inclined and share that decision with your family. Can a, can a cancer survivor be an organ donor? Uh, yes, they can, depending on the type of cancer and uh, um, what type of follow-up's been in place. Uh, and one, one more question about uh, kidney donation and uh, kidney recipients. It seems like uh, because there is an epidemic of obesity and diabetes in this country, that a lot of patients that I see who have diabetes and other uh, vascular issues with their extremities, uh, a, a fair number of them have a kidney transplant. Is that the most common reason for doing a kidney transplant today because it, of diabetes? In the United States, yes. Wow. Other reasons for kidney failure? There's some diseases that affect the kidney that have fancy names such as glomerulonephritis and uh, sclerosis. There's polycystic disease where the kidneys develop a lot of cysts. There's some metabolic defects where uh, the cells don't work right and the enzymes uh, have byproducts that uh, damage the kidneys. All fairly complex issues. Yes. Diabetes, pretty straightforward. And unfortunately, it's, uh, if you have diabetes, it's bad for the kidneys as well as most other organs. That's right. Dr. Charles Rosen, transplant surgeon at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, understanding how clinical trials improve patient care. And later on the show, tips for preventing constipation. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Puppy kisses, dog owners love them. The interaction between humans and dogs uh, is, is a very uh, special one. But can you get sick if you smooch your pooch? Is it going to be harmful to have a dog lick your face? Probably not. Infectious disease specialist Dr. Pratish Tosh says sure dogs' mouths are full of germs. 
After all, they spend much of their time sniffing and tasting, uh, things, so their mouths may have bacteria such as E. coli or salmonella in them. So theoretically, contracting something is possible, and Dr. Tosh says don't let dogs lick your wounds. Now, there is a theory that suggests exposure to dog germs is actually good for you. Is it beneficial in terms of good bacteria? I doubt it. But is it going to form that bond between you and that dog? I think likely. It seems puppy kisses probably won't kill you. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. And in other news, take a moment to think about your dining habits. Do you salt your food? How often do you eat out? Very much? Are meals at home out of a can or box? If you answered yes to two of these three questions, chances are you're getting too much salt. Most Americans eat too much salt. Although the dietary guidelines for Americans recommend keeping sodium to less than 2,300 milligrams a day, the average intake is closer to 3,500 milligrams a day. Lowering your salt intake can help lower your blood pressure and your risk of cardiovascular disease. A report looking at the potential impact of reducing salt intake found that if Americans cut their salt intake by 1,200 milligrams of sodium a day, new cases of heart disease, stroke, and heart attack would significantly drop, as would the number of deaths. So in this light, many experts are calling on food manufacturers and restaurants to lower the amount of salt in the foods they sell. So at home, consider reducing your salt intake if it's too high. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Tracy, clinical trials are research studies that are designed to explore if a treatment or a device is safe and effective for humans. Clinical trials do follow strict standards to produce reliable results. And that often requires that patients receive more tests, more exams than they would during a standard course of treatment. A clinical trial may show improved patient outcomes, but it can also show no benefit or even sometimes unexpected harm. All of these results are important because they advance medical knowledge and help improve patient care. Here to discuss clinical trials is Tony Manskow. Tony is the Clinical Trials Referral Coordinator here at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Tony. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate the opportunity. So it's great to have you on the program. Thank you. When you sit down with, with patients, as I know you do every day, how do you explain to them what a clinical trial really is? Sure. So we talk with probably a little over 5,000 people that contact the cancer center at Mayo Clinic. Um, Mayo Clinic as a whole, we have about 13,000 studies underway. So lots of research for 13, many, different, many different diseases. Um, so basically, clinical trials is something that someone is going to volunteer to participate. But for cancer, um, one of the things that comes into play is that the best time to contact someplace for clinical trial information is when you're newly diagnosed. Um, your slate is clean, you haven't had any prior treatment, mm -hmm. and there may be more clinical trial opportunities for someone to participate in. So really it's talking with someone so that they know what all their options are, and clinical trials is something to have on the table. Are most clinical trials cancer related? Um, no, not necessarily. Okay. There just happens to be a lot in cancer research, but the beauty of clinical trials or clinical research where it involves all types of research 
are that what's learned about one disease overflows and is benefiting many other diseases. And a perfect example is the diabetes drug metformin. It's very well known in the medical community, and we are currently studying that in the cancer community as a cancer prevention, but it's also being studied as a cancer treatment. And at Mayo, we're also studying it to see if it can prevent migraine headaches. So it's a lot of repurposing of medications and a lot of um, very fascinating research that's underway. I think it's also important to point out to, to patients who are potential candidates for a clinical trial is that there is some pretty good evidence already that the medication or device that you are going to be uh, using has shown some effectiveness in what you have. Yeah, so typically most medications or treatments are studied for about six or seven years in a laboratory before they're brought into clinical trials with people. And it goes through certain phases. So um, it's about seven to eight years of going through the phases before something's approved by the FDA or the Food and Drug Administration. So there's a lot of time that's spent to validate that this is something that's going to be effective. When you said uh, lots of times if a person has just been diagnosed with cancer, the best time to be part of a clinical trial is right after that diagnosis, before any treatment can begin. But I would have to imagine, isn't that something a little troubling for the patient? Does that affect how they are treated for their cancer? Yeah, so when I'm talking with someone... um, the best time to look for clinical trial information is when you're newly diagnosed. But the most important thing is that a patient knows what their treatment options are, knows that their clinical trial opportunities to participate. And another thing that's starting to be part of the conversation is would there be benefit in having genomic testing done? So it's having a healthcare provider that's looking at the full picture and exploring all of those options that they're on the table. What you're saying is that it's important to know about the clinical trials that have to do with your disease early on. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't it make sense to do the standard treatment first and then if that wasn't as effective as it could have been then to consider a clinical trial? It all depends on the patient's situation. So that one of the things that I talk about is that clinical trial information needs to be part of the conversation early on. So even if someone may not potentially be eligible for participating in a study, they need to know that at any time in their journey, they can look for that type of information. Mm -hmm. It's not that you're automatically going to choose to participate, but let's bring it up at the very beginning so that let's say someone is midway through their journey and all of a sudden that phrase clinical trial comes up, there may be a lot of fear, a lot of apprehension of participating and There are times when people will believe that that's a last hope for someone when clinical trials are brought up, and that's not necessarily so. Um, There may be studies where you are participating upon for first initial treatment, but Mm. it depends on the patient's situation. And how do you find a clinical trial for your specific diagnosis? I mean, is it usually a physician will say, oh, and you know what, I'm interested in research, and I happen to know that there's a clinical trial going on for this, or do patients come and say, I'd like to know more about it? It's a combination. Um, So we are very fortunate at Mayo Clinic that a lot of our physicians are actively involved in research and that there's um, conversations that are going on between all three of our Mayo sites and our Mayo Health System sites now. Um, But patients, sometimes they are struggling to find that information. Um, Probably the most um, comprehensive website for clinical trial information is our National Institutes of Health website. It's known as clinicaltrials.gov. And if I was going to choose one website to look for that information, that's where I'd go. But if people want help looking for clinical trial information, I would always suggest have that conversation with your healthcare provider, your physician, your nurse practitioner, your 
physician assistant, whatever provider you may be meeting with, um, but then also connecting with a disease-specific organization. And the benefit of connecting with a disease-specific group is that they may be up to date on the latest research and resources, and they may be able to help patients with quite a variety of information. But you need reliable resources. All right, so it's clinicaltrials.gov if you mm -hmm. want to look up specific clinical trials related to your uh, disease. Mm -hmm. Now, I assume that all of the patients that you see are referred to you by a physician or a provider at the Mayo Clinic. You don't see patients that uh, might come to the Mayo Clinic and just want to see you about a clinical trial, right? So the majority of people that we talk to in the Clinical Trial Referral Office, um, they are finding information on the Mayo Clinic website, so mayoclinic.org. Okay. And the majority of people have never been to Mayo Clinic. So if someone is interested in clinical trial information and they would like Mayo to help them find that information, we do have the Research Information Center. We have a toll-free phone number, and we also have the Mayo Clinic Cancer Center Clinical Trials Referral Office with a toll-free phone number. And you can find that on the mayoclinic.org website. Um, and we are glad to talk with anyone around the world who's looking for information, resources, and again, we're glad to be of assistance. What else do you want our listeners to know about the importance of clinical trials and why it should be on your radar? Mm -hmm. So the easiest way for someone to participate in clinical research is to give permission for your medical records to be reviewed. And that is something that we learn a tremendous amount from chart review studies. And an example is um, we had a uh, chart review study for people that had been diagnosed with a type of leukemia. And what was learned is that um, patients that had a low vitamin D level may not have had a longer survival rate than someone that had a normal vitamin D level and seeing if we can correct that prior to starting treatment. Wow, so if you want more information, mayoclinic.org is a place to start or clinicaltrials.org. And how do you get to the Research Information Center on the Mayo website? Yep, so it'd be clinicaltrials.gov, okay. and that's the National Sorry. Institutes of Health website, and then mayoclinic.org. And then yeah. go to Research Information Center. So you can um, find a, a tab on the mayoclinic.org website. It's a research. And okay. then when you click on that, there'll be a, a tab for find clinical trials and all of our contact information, along with a very um, well-designed video that gives you an overview of what is clinical research. All right, perfect. Clinical Trials Referral Coordinator, Tony Mangstow. Thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate this. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss the common problem of constipation. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. At one time or another, almost everybody seems to get constipated. Constipation is defined, well, everybody knows what sure. it is. It's by infrequent and sometimes difficult bowel movements. Now, in most cases, and for most of us, it only lasts a short time, and it's not a big deal. But chronic constipation can be a real problem and requires treatment for the underlying cause. Here to discuss treatment for this common problem is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist, Dr. Michael Camilleri. Dr. Camilleri is also Executive Dean of Development at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Camilleri. Good to see you. Thank you. Great to be with you. You know, everybody's different. Nobody's bowel movements are totally regular. And so first of all, tell our audience what's normal and what is it? Well, normal is a bit like various shades of gray, sure. <laughs> and they may differ for, from individual to individual. But in general, in the clinic, we ask patients how frequently they're having bowel movements, 
and also how much effort is required to have the bowel movement and what is the consistency of the bowel movements. Those are the three factors that help us clinically understand how severe the problem is and uh, what efforts the patient has to go through to actually have a bowel movement. So are you considered to be constipated if one of those three is not working correctly? Absolutely. So often people focus on the number of bowel movements per week. So often you might hear, oh, if you have less than three bowel movements a week, that means you're constipated. But we have several examples of people who have bowel movements, let's say, two or three times a week, but they have a sense of complete evacuation. It's completely comfortable, and they don't have to strain excessively or pass extremely hard stools, which can be painful. So we try to think not only of the frequency of the bowel movement, but also the ease of passage, the effort that's involved in evacuation of the bowel movement, and also the consistency of bowel movement. And these three factors also help us in terms of understanding what's the problem, what is the underlying cause. Can we deal with it, for instance, with uh, greater fiber intake or greater hydration? So it often gives us a clue to try to help the patients with some simple approaches to deal with the problem. Do you find that particularly older individuals try too hard to maintain a certain schedule, schedule and try too hard to have a bowel movement? Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that we try to do is to educate on um, a sensible um, approach to the bowel function. And in the elderly in particular, we also focus on what other medications is the patient taking. Um, inactivity is one of the factors that leads to um, a reduced frequency of bowel movements. And so I think uh, as we talk to patients, we try to understand the context within which that constipation is occurring. Medications, especially in the elderly and with polypharmacy, with many, many of our patients taking so many medications, mm -hmm. uh, are one of the things that we focus on, especially in the gastroenterology clinics, because often we could make recommendations to change the medication. I'll give you a couple of examples. There are patients who are taking blood pressure medications, and some of them are notoriously associated with an increased risk of constipation. And so we can often make some recommendations and we'll communicate with the primary care physician or the cardiologist on how to perhaps change the um, um, antihypertensive medication to try to avoid the constipation. If a patient is experiencing constipation but doesn't say, well, it's not a problem for me, it's not a big deal, is it still um, a good idea f to address that constipation even if you're not suffering, quote unquote? In general, if the patient is asymptomatic from the perspective of, you know, abdominal pain, bloating, uh, loss Strain. of appetite, yeah. excessive straining, I don't think that there's a good uh, evidence that we need to intervene. So, uh, again, I think it's important to look at this in the context of the whole patient experience. A couple of uh, contributing factors that you mentioned, inactivity and some uh, medications, particularly uh, hypertensive medications, we know narcotics can, can be a problem. What other contributing factors are there? These common factors are medications and inadequate dietary fiber, fiber. intake. So we estimate that to, and, and this has actually been done in controlled trials, that in order to change bowel function and bowel consistency, the, the diet should contain about 12 grams of fiber every day. 
And the average adult in the United States is far below that. So it's a very simple thing that we can do from a public health perspective and also in children who are constipated. So medications, fiber intake, inactivity, those are the three main things we look at. And then there are common conditions like hypothyroidism, which occurs in about 4 or 5% of the general population. And a low thyroid activity is also uh, associated with constipation. Patients often don't realize, but especially when they're feeling excessively cold and a bit drowsy and a bit tired, um, sluggish bowels may also be a sign of hypothyroidism. You mentioned children. Is it is uh, constipation common among children? It, it's really very common among children, um, and it's often the cause of uh, recurrent abdominal pain, as well as in the younger children, um, maybe under the age of five years, the additional problem of encopresis, where the constipation is so severe that they almost have um, diarrhea from the overflow of fluids that's going around the bowel movement in the colon and then resulting in, in accidents. So, um, you know, that's another factor that, that, uh, that requires uh, attention, especially in children. There aren't very many Americans, typical Americans, who get 12 grams of, of fiber in their diet, as you mentioned. So if you identify that as the problem, is it easier uh, to just give some sort of fiber supplement than it is to try to get somebody to change their diet? I think um, more and more people are aware of what they can do in the diet. Um, 20 years ago, I would probably have said it's probably easier to just uh, supplement fiber in the diet through a fiber supplement. And mm -hmm. there are a number of commercial preparations available. I think um, in general, um, adults especially uh, are more aware of the possibilities of, of improving their health by changing the, the, the diet. Um, That's wildly encouraging. <laughs> it really is, because lots of times people don't want to address what they're eating. They just want to take some pill or do something to fix my problem. Well, I, I think it's it has. I, I certainly have seen a, a change in attitude over the last couple of decades. Um, well, that's good. So that is good. And you know, I often uh, focus on the simple things that you can do. So I often say to patients, well, if you're going to choose a, ch a cereal, um, choose one that has fiber in it. Look at the box to see how much uh, fiber, how many grams of fiber there are in every every serving. Um, choose the ones that have less color. You know, more brown, and I say to them, less of the calorie stuff. Pink and green and blue is. <laughs> I, yeah, I, gotcha. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yes, but Tricks I. Are for kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I also say that you know every time we take a, a you know a, a, a slice of uh, brown bread in our diet, and especially if it has fiber in it, it, it's usually two to three grams. So it's very easy by taking a bran muffin, two to three uh, slices of bread a day, and a, and a bowl of cereal in the morning or whenever to reach your 12 grams. So I try to educate people that um, uh, it is possible to achieve that 12 grams of fiber quite easily. All right, and that's part of the key to avoiding constipation. Dr. Michael Camilleri, gastroenterologist at the Mayo Clinic and an expert in constipation, lots of good advice. Thanks Thank so much for being with us. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us.
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.